Uh, sometime after uh, John the Baptist had baptized Jesus in the Jordan River, he was with his own disciples and he saw Jesus. And the Gospel of John recounts this for us in chapter 1. And he turned to his own disciples, John did, and he said of Jesus, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He tells his disciples to set their eyes upon Jesus, to behold him, to take him in. And the reality is much faith can be built, much faith building occurs when we do this very thing, when we behold Jesus for who he is, when we give him his rightful place, when we consider who he is and what he has done. Um, Charles Spurgeon was once asked to preach in the Crystal Palace, this uh, large, it's really an exhibition ground building, but a nice building. Uh, don't think Evraz Place, but a, a nice one. Uh, but he's asked to preach in this Crystal Palace, do this service, and so he went there to check this venue out in advance, and he got up, as he's being shown around, he got up to the place where they were installing the pulpit, and he decided to test the acoustics of the building And so he bellowed out this line from John, this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he just carried on his way. And little did he know that there was a gentleman working there in the building at the time. Spurgeon did not know he was there. But this man heard him declare this from this platform. And uh, this, this summons to behold the Lamb stuck with this man. Until eventually he did see the Lamb of God with eyes of faith. He believed in the Lord. He bowed the knee in submission to Christ and followed him. Uh, The entirety of the Bible is really, we know, about Christ and is pointing to him. Which means there's so many different places we can go and we can behold Christ. And Today we come to Psalm 110, and I'll invite you to turn there. And this is unmistakably and clearly depicting the Lord Jesus, this psalm is. The New Testament quotes this psalm all over the place. Jesus quotes it, Paul quotes it, Peter does, Hebrews quotes this psalm, all of them mining Psalm 110 uh, for the truths they have to teach us about Christ. And so we want to turn to it and we want to turn our eyes to Christ. We want to behold him. We want to consider what this says about the Messiah. This psalm is filled with insight into the person, and the work, and the regal, kingly majesty of Christ. So I invite you to read this with me, and then we will work our way through it. So Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head.
So again, this psalm is teaching us about Christ, the Messiah. And just as we go, we want to set our eyes upon him and uh, just give you the outline here. of The first three verses, verses 1 to 3, looking at Jesus, the exalted king. And then we see Jesus, the priest king in verse 4. And then finally, we see Jesus, the warrior king, in verses 5 to 7. So, uh, Jesus, the exalted king. Again, in the superscription there, we read that this is a psalm of David, uh, that this is authored by him, written by him. This is important in understanding this psalm and interpreting it. Uh, and this is a fact. This, the fact that this is written by David is supported by Jesus. He says that David spoke this by the Spirit. Uh, Peter also attributes this to, to, uh, to David. And this is further evidence. Some people try to say that these superscriptions, these, these uh, phrases at the beginning of the, some of the Psalms that are written in all caps, probably in your, in your English Bible, some people try to say these are not original, these are not inspired, but they are. They're, they're part of the original text uh, that we have. And Jesus, the New Testament, confirms this for us in numerous places. Uh, so Jesus, Peter, they affirm David wrote this psalm. Now we've seen that often uh, the psalms are prayers of, of Jesus, uh, and that David is functioning as a type of Christ, uh, that he's pointing ahead to the one who would come. So things that are true of David are, are uh, we might say, perhaps more true in Christ. They find a greater fulfillment, prayers of David on the lips of Jesus. But this psalm is perhaps a little bit more straightforward, and we might even say a little more simple in one sense, in that we have here really a, a straight-up prophecy about Christ. That David is speaking about something outside of himself. He's pointing to Christ quite directly here. So look at verse 1. It says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so this, this psalm begins with a line that sounds a little bit confusing. The Lord says to my Lord. That sounds like the Lord is just speaking to himself. And uh, so it can, it can sound confusing to us. But when you see the word Lord written there with the O-R-D in, in smaller uppercase letters as we have it in your English Bibles, uh, this is substituting in, this word Lord is substituting in for the uh, personal and covenantal name of God, Yahweh. Or some people trans- would translate that as Jehovah. Uh, the reason why this is the case, um, we won't get into all of that now, but um, essentially the Jews got to the place where they, they did not want to to say the personal covenantal name of God, Yahweh. Uh, and so they, they said Lord instead. And then when the, uh, the scholars translated the Greek Old Testament the Septuagint, they used uh, the word Lord instead of the word Yahweh. And then this is just kind of stuck around and, and it's made its way into English Bibles, but it, it alerts you to the fact that this word is Yahweh by putting it in all caps here. So, I mean, I personally wish they would just... You know, God tells us his name. I wish they would just write it there, but anyway, this is what it is. So in the Hebrew text, it says Yahweh. It says, Yahweh says to my Lord. That second word, Lord, where it's 
the O-R-D is in lowercase, um, that is the word Adonai, which means Lord or Master. And it, it is applied often to God himself, but it sometimes also is applied to a human master. Uh, for example, to a king. If someone was addressing someone greater than them, they might use this word Adonai, speak of their master or king or lord. And so what David is saying here is he's saying, Yahweh says to my Lord. Yahweh says to my king, to my master. Now that, that clarifies some things, but it's still a bit of an odd statement for David to make. Uh, David has no earthly master. Besides Yahweh, he has no one over him on this earth. And even, so, so for David to, to call somebody his, his Lord is a bit strange. And even if he's speaking of a descendant who would be great, uh, this is not the typical, normal way of speaking of your descendant. Abraham wouldn't look to his children and call them Lord. That would be inappropriate. He would not call them Adonai. And yet David is referring to somebody here as his Lord, distinguished in some way from Yahweh. And so Jesus, he refers to this verse in Matthew 22, verse 43, again in Luke chapter 20 and verse 41. I think he probably does it in Mark 2. I don't know the reference. But he, he, he makes clear to us that David, when he, when he references my Lord, he is speaking about the Messiah. He's speaking about the Christ. And Jesus gets the people that he's speaking with to ponder why it is that David calls the Christ his Lord. So he asks, if, if then David calls him, the Christ, Lord, how is he his son? So if, if the Messiah is the son of David, and that's true, the Old Testament said that very clearly, Jesus then, then just points to this verse in Psalm 110 and says, well, then why does David call him Lord if he's a descendant? That, that wouldn't, doesn't, that's not normal. That doesn't seem entirely appropriate. And, he, and Jesus doesn't directly answer the question. He raises it and has them ponder this reality. The Messiah is the son of David, and yet is also David's Lord. And while Jesus didn't answer that right away, the New Testament most certainly does reveal the answer to us. How can this be? And David's reference to the Christ as his Lord is completely and entirely appropriate. Because, as the New Testament makes very clear, Jesus is in fact the eternal Son of God. So he's, he's greater than David in every way. And so it's perfectly right and appropriate for David to refer to him as his Lord. He is a descendant of David according to the flesh, but he pre-existed before David according to his divinity. He is the divine Son of God come in human form, and so he is greater than David. David is right to refer to him as my Lord. And this psalm itself even reveals some of the ways that David, or that Jesus, the Messiah, is greater than David. One of those ways is that this psalm testifies to the pre-existence of Christ, that he existed prior to his incarnation. Now, John the Baptist, in John chapter 1, 
He said, he declared that Jesus ranked before him because he was before him. He came before him. Now, John was born first. John was older. And so John is saying that Jesus pre-existed before coming into the world. That he was, as the beginning of John's gospel says, he was the word who was with God and the word who was God. And that this was so in the beginning. And this psalm testifies to this reality. Now, it's not as obvious in Psalm 110.1. It's not as clearly stated as it is in, say, John 1. But it is here. David is prophetically relaying to us what the Father has spoken to the Son. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord. The Father is speaking to the Son here. And so we might ask, when did this conversation take place? When did this declaration happen? And it clearly happened before Jesus ever came into the world in earthly form. David was aware of this. David is relaying this many hundreds of years before Jesus shows up in Bethlehem. And so the best, most consistent answer is that this is part of this this. declaration is part of God's eternal decree from before the foundation of the world, that the Father would send the Son into the world and the Son would earn redemption and then in his death, in his life, in his death, and then his resurrection, and then he would ascend to the Father's right hand. These were promises to Christ from the Father that make up part of God's eternal plan of salvation. And so, in this very first line, this very basic, in one hand, statement, the Lord says to my Lord, there is an acorn of truth here that, in the New Testament, grows into an oak. There's so much contained within that statement itself. And then verse 1 continues and tells us specifically what it was that the Father declared to the Son. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And again, these lines are, are packed with significance and with implications. And this verse is, is, is appealed to many times throughout the New Testament. And many of, much of its significance and the implications from it are, are pulled out and, and shown us in the New Testament. And so I just want to consider a few of those. Uh, first of all, in Acts chapter 2, in verse 34, uh, Peter, in the first sermon we have uh, after Pentecost, on the day of Pentecost, Peter quotes these words to show that this was fulfilled at Christ's ascension. So after Jesus' death and then his resurrection, Jesus ascended to the Father. And, and, and this ascension was prophesied here in Psalm 110, verse 1. And and Peter is, as he's preaching to these people, he's saying this is not surprising that Jesus went to be with the Father because the Father said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so this is fulfilled when Jesus ascended to the Father after his resurrection on the day of Pentecost. We also see in the New Testament that this verse speaks of a completed work. 
So Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 to 14, the author there picks up on this word, sit, sit at my right hand. And he tells us that this conveys the idea of a finished task. That salvation is something that is purchased and it is complete. That Jesus offered himself one time and that his work is indeed finished as he declared from the cross. This is in contrast to the Levites who continually had to go and offer and their work is never done and they're always up and they're around. They can't sit because the job is not done. Jesus has finished his task. He sits. So this is a completed work implied in this. Uh, Further, this verse, verse speaks of Christ's exaltation. He is ascended specifically to the Father's right hand. This is the highest place of honor that one could possibly receive, and it falls to the Christ upon completion of redemption, upon his resurrection and his ascension. He now has, as Philippians 2 tells us, the name that is above every name, and the God-man sits at the Father's right hand in his human nature. So it is true in his divine nature, the Christ, or Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, is omnipresent, but his human, in his human nature, he currently is at the right hand of the Father. The right hand, of course, uh, being an anthropomorphism, God does not literally have a, a right arm of uh, the Father, he is spirit. But this is saying that Jesus is at this place of honor, this place of authority, this place of power. And Hebrews 1.13 quotes this verse to show us that Christ is greater than the angels. Uh, since this statement is made from the Father to the Son, it is not made to anyone else to sit at my right hand. This is not a statement to angels. As glorious as angels are, as perfect as they are, they are ministering spirits, but the Son alone is at the Father's right hand. So this speaks of Christ's exaltation. And of course, this verse also teaches us about Christ's heavenly session, as it is often referred to. That is this time period between Christ's ascending and his returning, a time in which he waits until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. The very thing here in, in, in Psalm 110, Hebrews 10, 12, and 13 picks up on this, saying that Christ is waiting until that time when his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet, the time when he will return. And in this present season now, Paul tells us, Romans 8.34, Jesus is the one who is at the right hand of God, that's the allusion to Psalm 110, who indeed is interceding for us. That his ascension to the right hand is the place at which he currently intercedes for his own as a high priest. And we will cover more of that as we get to verse 4. So we have here again Christ's ascension, His completed work, his heavenly session, his waiting until all enemies are under his feet. The Christ is an exalted king. The exalted king. And his kingship is clear in verse 2. It says there, The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. 
Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. So in verse 1, David recounts this, what the Father speaks to the Son. And then in verse 2, he is now addressing the Christ. He's now addressing the Son. And he calls on him to rule. Now, some would say this verse, uh, verse 2 and verse 3, is purely just referring to what's going to take place uh, at a future time when Christ's return, when Christ returns, either in the millennial reign or in the new heavens and new earth. Um, but I would argue that this should be understood as being partially fulfilled now and something that will be finally fulfilled then. Uh, so why do I say this? Well, when Christ came into the world, he said, and even John the Baptist declared this, the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. The king was coming. Jesus had come. He had arrived. He had not been exalted yet. He was in his incarnation. He was still lowly in the form of a servant. The cross was yet before him, but the kingdom was nevertheless at hand. And then as he died, he rose, and he has ascended to the Father's right hand. Uh, The kingdom of God continues to be proclaimed, and as people believe in Christ, we enter into the kingdom by faith. We are citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem. Think of Colossians chapter 1. that says how we have come out of the kingdom of darkness, and we have come into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And so the rule of the king, the king has come, his rule has come, and it has gone out from Zion, from Jerusalem, as the gospel has gone forth. As the great commission went forth, the apostles out from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, as the church likewise has gone out, as the gospel continues to go out and span the globe, people enter into the kingdom of God. They come under Christ's saving rule. And his people now... We offer ourselves freely, indeed, to him. As a result of God's drawing and saving grace, we freely and happily come, and we offer ourselves to our Lord. And we are arraigned in holy, pure garments, the very righteousness of Christ himself granted to us by faith. And so there is a a now reality to this. Christ is exalted. He does rule now. People do enter his kingdom now. We are citizens of that even now. But there is also, of course, a not yet aspect to this, that this will finally be finally fulfilled, completely fulfilled. His kingdom will be consummated when Christ returns and when his enemies are finally conquered, that time when he comes and the last of his enemies are placed under his feet. In the last couple lines of verse 3, uh, these, these, these are variously translated. They're understood in different ways. There's some difficult words, but I think the, just the best interpretation seems to, this, this seems to be a poetic way of saying that this kingship of Christ will endure forever, that his youth will never run out, that the dew of his youth will always be with him. 
In verse 4, it's going to say he's a priest forever. I think this is just a similar way of saying this. We think of do as something that's here one minute, gone the next. Youth is fleeting and is gone. Uh, this will not be the case with the Lord Jesus in his kingdom. It will forever endure. And so this psalm begins by revealing to us this exalted king, Jesus. And so let us, in response to this, bow our heads, bow our hearts before him in humility to prostrate ourselves before him who is the great king, who rules now, who is at the place of highest honor with the name that is above every name. Jesus, the exalted king. Secondly, we see Jesus, the priest king. In verse 4, there's another statement that is made to to Jesus, to the Son, by the Father. Uh, Look at verse 4. It says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The promise here is that this exalted king will also be a priest And he will be a priest forever. So this exalted king, he is both priest and king. He's a priest king. The first half of verse 4 reveals the certainty of this reality. As God confirms this with a sure oath, it says Yahweh has sworn. He's sworn an oath and he will not change his mind. So there are some promises in the Bible that come with conditions. Uh, Sometimes these conditions are explicitly stated, if this, then I will do that. Uh, But other times the conditions are implied. So, for example, uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, in verse 30, you have Eli, who was the priest on the time of Samuel, when Samuel was a child. And it is clear in in 1 Samuel 2.30 that God had promised that Eli's house, his line, would serve him as priests forever. But then in that same verse, God says he's not going to fulfill that. He's not going to make Eli's house stand before him forever due to the miserable failure of Eli and his sons to actually honor God and, and hold him up as holy before the people. And so there is very clearly a condition impl- uh, implied in whatever in the promise that God had made to Eli whenever he had done that. Namely, the condition was, if you serve me faithfully. So this statement in Psalm 110, verse 4, is very carefully worded. And it reveals to us that this is not an Eli-type situation. What God says of Christ's priesthood will surely and certainly come to pass. He has sworn an oath, and he will not change his mind. The Father is not going back on this. This is certain. So if you were uh, an Old Testament saint in David's time or, or after him, you would look to this and know that this will most certainly come to pass. This Messiah would come, the priest He will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And as we now, knowing that this is Christ, 
We are reminded that Christ forever serves in this role. The Father has sworn to this end. And so this actual promise, the actual oath, is you are a priest forever. So there's not going to be a line with Jesus, a line of succession. There's no other priest to come after Jesus, just one individual. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So what is this business of Melchizedek? Uh, what does it mean to be after the order of Melchizedek? Uh, this might be a place where some would be tempted to check out or gloss over. Uh, this is a, a weird name and a, a weird story about Melchizedek. I remember one sermon uh, from years ago by D.A. Carson called Getting Excited About Melchizedek, which is just funny. Um, it seems maybe a bit nerdy, but it is exciting if we think about, if we hear what the Bible says about the connection between this obscure Old Testament figure of Melchizedek and the Lord Jesus. So, so what does it mean to be after the order of Melchizedek? Well, first, let's just remind ourselves of who Melchizedek was. Now, at the start of the service, I read from Genesis chapter 14, where Melchizedek makes this somewhat mysterious appearance. And, he, and he's on the scene, he's in the narrative for a grand total of three verses. And then he fades away. He fades away from the Old Testament picture, from the Old Testament narrative, until Psalm 110. And all of a sudden, the father is saying to the son, You'll be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then again, there's no reference to Melchizedek until we come to the book of Hebrews, where suddenly he unpacks over chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, he begins to unpack the connection between Melchizedek and Jesus. So back in Genesis 14, we're told there that Melchizedek was a king. He was the king of a city named Salem, which is Jerusalem. It's the early name for it. So he's the king of Salem, and he came out to meet Abram after he had rescued Lot from the kings that had conquered Sodom and taken Lot with them. He goes and rescues Lot, comes back. Melchizedek, king of Salem, comes out to meet Abram. Not only are we told he's a king, though, we're also told... He is priest of God Most High. And as he comes out to meet Abram, we're told he brought bread and wine, interestingly. And then he pronounced a blessing upon Abram. And then in response to this, Abram tithed to Melchizedek. He gave him a tenth of all the spoils. And then that's it. The story moves on. And that's what we've got until Psalm 110. And then David writes here and tells us that Christ will be a priest in the manner of, or after the order of Melchizedek. And so Melchizedek is not just some random figure, some offhand thing that Moses decided to just throw in. But those three verses in Genesis give us a glimpse into the priesthood of the Messiah. Melchizedek is a type of the Christ. He's a picture. He foreshadows Christ. This is what I think Hebrews gets at when it says that he resembled the Son of God. He's a type, a picture. 
And so this priesthood of Melchizedek pictures Christ in a way that the Levitical priesthood doesn't and couldn't. Uh, So it sheds even further light on what the Christ will be like. And so in what way does Melchizedek foreshadow Christ? In what way is Jesus a priest forever after the order of or in the manner of Melchizedek? Well, again, Hebrews 5-7 to really spells this out. It really is a sermon or part of a sermon just based on this text here, Psalm 110, verse 4. And so with that as our guide, here are a few things to note. To be a priest after the order of Melchizedek means that Christ, first of all, that Christ is not, is a non-Levitical priest. So Jesus, according to the flesh, we know, descended from David. And David, Jesus, were of the tribe of Judah. There is no mention of priests from Judah's line anywhere in the Old Testament. Rather, under the Mosaic Covenant, the priests were sons of Aaron who were Levites. They were from the tribe of Levi. So to suddenly come to the New Testament... And for Jesus' followers to now claim that the Levitical priesthood is not necessary and Jesus is now the priest, the Messiah is now a priest, that is a major claim since he is obviously and clearly from the line of Judah. But Psalm 110 prepares us for this very change, for this very shift. This is what the author, again, of Hebrews is saying, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 to 14. There was a coming priest who was not going to be from Levi, but was more like Melchizedek. So Christ is is not a Levite. Um, Secondly, to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek means Jesus is actually greater than the Levitical priests. So again, Melchizedek, we are told in Hebrews 7, 7, was greater than Abraham. Uh, So um, there in Hebrews 7, 7, it tells us that the, the inferior Abram was blessed by the superior, Melchizedek. Now, as we read the Old Testament, we think, who's greater than Abraham? Very few people rise to that. He is the father of this nation. You think of the promises made that the Messiah would come through his line. All the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. And yet, we're told in the Bible that Melchizedek is is greater than Abram. And even Levi, in a sense, Hebrews says, paid tithes to the greater Melchizedek since, Melchi- since Levite, Levi was in his father's loins still, not yet born. So Jesus is greater than the Levitical priests. And this also reveals that the Levitical priesthood was limited. It was limited in its function and is unable to bring about the perfection of the people of God since a different and greater priesthood was necessary. That that, that God is saying there's going to be another priest tells us there's an insufficiency in the Levitical priests to actually bring about redemption for anybody. So thirdly, for Jesus to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek reveals that a new and better covenant was coming. Again, Hebrews 7, 11 to 14, and in verse 22 again, reveals this very clearly. The promise of Christ being a priest like Melchizedek means that the Mosaic covenant would come to an end and that a new covenant would come. 
So that, that is very explicitly stated elsewhere in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31, 31 is a great place. It speaks of this new covenant that would come. But that is even implied right here. To have a priest who is not a Levite would violate the Mosaic covenant, which means that for this to take place, for a new priest to come after the order of Melchizedek, means that there is going to, of necessity, be a change in the law, Hebrews tells us, a change in the covenant. And indeed there is. There's a new covenant that Jesus has inaugurated, and it is a better covenant in which he has actually offered himself once for all and actually brought about the forgiveness of sins for all who believe in him. Fourth thing, being a priest after the order of Melchizedek means that the office of priest and the office of king are united in one person, in Christ. So, under the Mosaic Covenant, you had, you had two, two offices. The office of king and the office of priest, and they were separate. The king was not the priest, the priest was not the king. The, the priests were descendants of Levi, and the king, after David, these were descendants to be descendants of David. And so these are different functions, different offices. But in Melchizedek, the two were united in one person. Before ever David or Aaron walked the earth, you had the king who was also the priest. And this pictures how both of these offices would again be united in the Messiah. And so as you, if you are the the author of Hebrews, and you are preaching to, you're writing to Jews, Hebrews, who are tempted to go back under the old covenant. He is is appealing to Psalm 110 to show how much greater Christ is and his priesthood, greater than the Levites. Priest and king united in one person a new and better covenant. And then one last thing, to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek also means that Jesus holds this priesthood perpetually. He holds it forever. That's explicitly stated in verse 4. You are a priest forever. Again, in in, in Hebrews, in chapter 7, verse 3, we're told that Melchizedek resembles the Son of God because it's, it's as if Melchizedek has no beginning and no end. It's as if he has no father or no mother. He has no genealogy to speak of. He just shows up, and then he just disappears. And we have no clue where he came from. We don't know how he got his position, or who his parents were, or anything like that. It's like he's one of a kind. It's like he continues forever. And well, in a much greater way, of course, Christ really truly does continue forever. He holds his priesthood eternally. And he has attained this priesthood not by physical descent, but rather by the power of an indestructible life, as Hebrews says. His perfection and his rising from the dead secures his status as the forever high priest. And it is this reality that provides believers with great assurance of salvation because the priest who continues forever 
has been appointed by the Father to offer his own perfect self once for all time. He has risen from the dead and is glorified now at the right hand of the Father, where he presently intercedes for his own. And consequently, he has become the source of eternal salvation for all who believe in him, and he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Our confidence that Christ saves us eternally so and will keep us forever is that Christ forever functions in this role as our intercessor, as our high priest. He has secured an eternal redemption. This is the Messiah in whom we trust. He is the priest king who is high priest of the new covenant in which there is eternal salvation for all who trust in him on the basis of his priestly work, his offering of himself, and his ongoing intercession. And so when you, if you despair of your sin, look up to him. Behold the Lamb of God who really, truly, effectually takes away sin and place all your hope and confidence in him. It is a certain hope. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. The Christ is a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, thirdly, and just briefly, Jesus is the priest king, but he is also the warrior king. In verses 5 to 7, these verses point us forward to what will yet come when Jesus returns. He will return as a warrior, bringing judgment upon his enemies. And these verses remind us not to take Jesus lightly or to think of him purely as the sacrificial lamb who went meekly to the slaughter. He did do those, he did do that. He is the Lamb. But we must also remember that he will return with a sword to establish justice according to God's righteousness. And this means judgment for his enemies. So, verse 5 The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. In verse 1, again, the father speaks to the son. Then in verse 2, David seems to speak to, to the son himself. Yahweh sends forth from Zion, your mighty scepter. And now in verse 5, he addresses the father, saying, The Lord, Adonai, the Messiah, the son, The Lord is at your right hand, which I think is just what he has already said in in, in verse 1, consistent with verse 1. Jesus is at your right hand. He's addressing the Father. And so then, this shattering of kings on the day of his wrath, this is referring to Jesus. This is the Son, David's Lord. And it speaks of what is to come as if it has already occurred. Because it is a sure and certain thing. He will return and he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. Executing judgment among the nations. 
filling them, it says, with corpses. It is, it is a grim picture, a precursor of what we find in the book of Revelation, where Jesus, we're told, treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. The enemy here is said to be kings, but it is not limited to them. All of mankind stands under God's wrath, under his condemnation for sin. And it is only through faith in this exalted king, because of his priestly work, that anyone can be forgiven. And so John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. God will judge the world by his Son. And Psalm 110 reminds us of this. Christ is gracious, yes, but he is not to be toyed with. If you have ears to hear, if you can see your sin, if you can see the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, repent of your sin, trust in him, flee the wrath to come. Take refuge in the exalted priest king that you may not be subject to his wrath when he comes. And verse 7 here, as this psalm concludes, pictures Jesus refreshing himself either before he continues the route of his enemies or more likely, I think, refreshing himself when it is over and then lifting his head to enjoy victory that he has brought about and perfect justice. So as we consider this psalm, at first glance, it might not seem to say very much. It's only seven verses. It might even appear to be very confusing. However, This psalm does, in fact, contain many wonderful gospel truths in seed form. And in light of what we know in the coming of Christ and his incarnation, what the New Testament scriptures reveal to us, further light is shed on this psalm and its fulfillment is made clearer. This psalm magnifies the plan of God in which the Father sent his Son to come to earth to carry out his priestly work by earning righteousness for his people and then offering himself for the sins of his people, rising from the dead and then ascending to the Father's right hand where he would continue his priestly work forever. And having ascended, he will then return to the earth, from that place of the Father's right hand. And the last of his enemies will be made subject to him and will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so let us give Christ the glory that is due his name by seeking refuge in this great King and then setting our eyes on what is to come, our great salvation and the return of the King. And let us give thanks to the Father for sending his Son in love and in grace. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we just could 
spend much time looking at these verses, much more time looking at these verses, examining Hebrews 5-7, to pulling out all these implications about what this teaches us about Christ. But we just step back and we praise you for your wisdom. Uh, This gospel is folly to so many, and yet it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And so we just, we praise you. We, We agree with your word that your ways are so much higher than man's ways. And that what is folly to you, what might be folly to you is in fact wisdom. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand Christ for who he is. To better understand the greatness of the salvation that he has worked. To see in Christ, Father, your love for us. So we just thank you, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.